know, I brought it up before on the show that all too often when driving through some stretch of cornfields, my mind starts to wander to the drastic change in the environment that had to happen in order for there to be the rows and rows of a single tropical plant, let alone the hidden complexity of an agricultural system producing that monocrop. All the hidden costs of intensely pulling all of the nutrients out of the ground to grow those fields and fields and fields, fields that are only there in the first place because of the ecology that was leveled to make way for our present sea of corn, or the chemicals required to grow them faster, free of unwanted plants, animals, or insects, the tools required to keep all those free and to keep things growing on time, eventually flowing down to create whole portions of ocean dead to life in the Gulf of Mexico. In some ironic way, the perpetual motion machine that is nature always finds a way to get back at us when we try to push the bounds of what's natural, reminding us that nothing is a zero sum, nothing is for free. Instead of trying to fight back from that reminder, though, we can ride the wave working with nature. Nowadays, we notice that a pesticide is creating insects that are immune to it and then double down on the dose or add something else to increase the lethality. We can instead scrap that system altogether for all of its ill and the trail of ashes it leaves. Maybe instead of trying to kill the insects, we try to find ways to attract more birds who will keep those bugs in check. A paradox of our time is we seemingly have more means than ever to realize the harm the system has while simultaneously doubling down more than ever. It's also been never better to learn an alternative, a different way to organize our relationship with our environment, to know how it was before, what is best suited for the advantages and disadvantages of that geography, in order to cultivate a farm that works with the complex world it lives in, not seemingly trying to create a new one. Paying attention to all the microorganisms getting sucked up into a tree's roots, or the birds on the branches, or a squirrel burying an acorn. And yes, even the bugs buzzing past. The landscape of North America has been drastically changed. It's happened in the past couple hundred years, forcing all of the elk to flee to the mountains, the oceans of grasslands to vanish, with a massive continent-spanning oak savannas along with them. The amazing thing about that paradox of our time is we have the opportunity and all the knowledge we'd need right at our thumbs to change the environment of North America again, and for the better. I think we can agree that there's good in leaving a place better off than we found it. Then why not apply that to our environment too? Or how my guest muses in this conversation, why can't we have parks in the Midwest full of pawpaws and plums and all the other types of edible plants in a natural setting for us to explore and enjoy? Because the paradox of our time is things are getting more complex. Things are getting more difficult. But we have everything at our disposal to make it a better place, to go in the opposite direction, and really save us from ourselves. My guest today is Reed Swenson of Edifon Farms. He cultivates mushrooms, grows organic produce, and has an overall wellspring of knowledge for all things, for all things native to the Midwest and regenerative agriculture. In this conversation, we talk about mushrooms, how plants will harvest little organisms with their roots, 
farming by harvesting fungi in the air with cooked rice, or by fermenting plants, both different techniques from South Korea. The Grand Kankakee Marsh that used to cover northwest Indiana in what was called the Everglades of the North and the Breadbasket to Chicago. We also talk about native plants, regenerative farming, and how vegans make the best coffee. There's a lot that we talk about in between and a fast-paced and very fun conversation. Thank you to Reed for coming on the podcast, and thank you for you for listening. Wherever this reaches you on our beautiful blue planet, I'm wishing you well. Hey, real quick while I have you here. If you like what you're listening to, please tap that follow or subscribe, as well as sign up for notifications so you'll know when our next season or episode drops. Also, if you're curious to look at our catalog of all that we have to offer and some exciting things we have to come, please visit us at bandwidth.productions. Uh, thank you again. Thank you for having to hold these mics this whole time. It hopefully won't be too annoying. Uh, you want to introduce yourself really quick? Uh, yeah, Reed Swenson, uh, owner, operator, co-owner, operator of Edifon Farm, LLC. Uh, also massage therapist, father, um, I don't know. Yeah, identities are funny, but that's cool. Yeah. <laughs> never quite uh, sure where to go. Yeah, I never know where to go with that either, so it's better, right? It's an awkward question to ask, but I always prefer to have the person do it than me. Most, most people use their business, which... Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I I don't know. Um, I feel like the more the more you develop a business, the more you can identify your identity with that, which is I don't know. Um, something I avoid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like uh, I like how useless identities are. Yeah, yeah. They can they can be mildly they they can be helpful for like if you are floundering in life. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or just useful in chunking, I guess, in general. Yeah. So like, oh, like these people are musicians. These people are yeah. this. These people are that. Definitely. Uh, but other than that, I feel like it kind of gets slippery really quick. Yeah, you want to avoid. Well, at least I want to avoid. You know, letting it become a box and um, keeping me from exploring other stuff. Which is something that I like to do. Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> it's also goofy too because I feel like things that are probably the most personal to you are the identities that you're least likely to say first. Yeah, I, I could see that for most people. Um, yeah, I guess at this point for myself, the, the things that I identify the most with are being a dad and growing food and then also yeah massage massage therapy is like the other thing that um during the during the summer i'm mostly working with like food and farming and then a couple days a month really i'm doing massage therapy and with that balance it's like anytime i go and do some body work it's like oh yeah this really uh is something that i enjoy i'm I'm pretty good at this and it like it's just a different it's a different vibe um working one-on-one -on -one with people and long periods of time being able to dig into like layers whereas with food and farmers markets everything is so fast-paced and 
human interactions are really superficial and fast, and then I get to spend time with like the other things that I like to, you know, get to know, mushrooms and plants and all that stuff, soil. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Transactional versus more like deeply personal and connecting to you. I mean, if you're doing massage work, that's, that's pretty intimate. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and yeah, I mean, we can, we can dig into the things that I think about with each of those <laughs> uh, enterprises, but for sure with massage, like, and it's so, that, that practice has um, made me appreciate human beings mm. in a way that I didn't before. Um, be, being able to engage like both with physical body, uh, physicality is I think something that I just didn't really grow up with so much. And I can identify that in uh, in my wife, she, her dad owned a gym, she was always in like circus, like physical activities were kind of what she did, whereas I played music and read books. So like, I had a certain level of detachment from the physical body, I think, and getting into massage was like, oh, I can actually appreciate all these different facets. And then with some people, like, they can be so removed from their physical body yeah. that you really need to engage on more of like an energetic level, uh, which is a whole new thing that, you know, I remember watching, like watching uh, uh, like Dragon Ball Z and stuff and being like, oh man, energy and like magic and stuff. I could like imagine that. Um, and it turns out that's, you know, I don't, I haven't met anyone that can, shoot a, a magic ball and blow up a city yet but uh yeah. it's like that stuff is is super real and it can have such an impact uh and then also ties into like being being a parent and i don't know man i can just ramble on you keep rambling <laughs> this <one> is. <laughs> no uh, there's like fine lines between woo and reality and i feel like the part that frustrates me a lot is that people tend to capitalize on the woo and detach it more from reality. But, yeah. But there definitely is something to energy. It just sounds very new age and wooey to say that, but I totally think there is. Yeah. And I think making, making distinctions about the different sort of types of energy is important. Um, uh, like emotional being the most tangible. So what actually one thing that helped me a lot kind of compartmentalize and, and make the distinctions is I took a class in Thailand called Five Bodies and uh, the meditation is basically you, you sit, you tune into each of the five layers, physical, um, emotional, mental, energetic, and then light. And really making the, the different differentiation between all of those sort of layers. You can still think of emotional energy as energy, or you can think of the mental energy as energy. And then there's just like the qualities of, I don't know, energy. It starts to get a little bit muddled because we just don't have the right words for it. No. But 
Yeah, you, you walk into a room, especially with kids, and you're pissed off, they react. And like, they can identify that. It takes, I think, in my experience with my daughter, it's taken her a little while to start to be able to like put the words to it. But you could tell, like, if I was feeling super just distraught and like anxious, um, she's jittery. She's not happy with anything. And that's a really good like mirror, a, a good reflection to sort of understand um, your emotional state affects what's around you. Your energetic state affects what's around you. And like, there's all sorts of practices that like, look at those things like the aura, aura photos and aura readings. The, the other thing that put that into like reality for me is um, that book, The Body Electric. Hmm. I've heard of this, I don't have to read it though. Uh, Robert Becker, I believe, is the, the guy, but it, it started off as trying to understand like, you cut off a salamander's leg, it can regrow an entirely new leg. Uh, if I think in their sort of lookings, they weren't, they weren't cutting off fingers of children but if a if a an infant i believe it was like under a year old lost a finger they can regrow an entirely new finger it was until like maybe two and a half they'll grow they'll regrow like most of a finger and that sort of uh, whatever it is that vital energy starts to decrease you know as as we age um so his whole, the, the entire book is really about like understanding the bioelectricity and, um, you know, magnetism, like these more subtle things and how they impact, uh, physiology and also the, you know, if it impacts us, it impacts the plants. Mm -hmm. And if a cell tower affects the birds, it's probably affecting us. Like anything that is alive is electrical which i think we all sort of inherently understand but thinking about it in those terms really changes the way that uh you can see how things operate yeah i mean we were talking so to connect some of this together we we're talking about how both of us grew up playing music mm -hmm. and i mean if you sing to a plant it grows better and yeah. that, that's been well documented um and i do think you know, English tends to be dry when it comes to a lot of these more nuanced uh, definitions. So like, for example, uh, the different types of energy and the different ways they could do that. I feel like energy in English, especially America, uh, is so stigmatized that, oh, energy, woo, eye roll. When in yeah. reality, you know, you walk into a room, you are feeling tired, you have a conversation with somebody you enjoy, you walk out of that room and you feel elevated well, that's emotional energy. Mm -hmm. Or you are feeling tired again, you go for a walk, you go for a run, you do something physical, you're feeling energized, it's physical energy. We, we experience these things, but we don't have the words for them. Um, and in yeah. Eastern, you were talking about Thailand, um, but in Eastern philosophy versus Western philosophy, I feel like now in the West, we are so bogged down by the enlightenment and the scientific thinking of things yeah. that we just can't get out of it. Um, so something I've been thinking about recently is how in Buddhism, 
Uh, so in both Chinese and Japanese. Uh, so in Chinese, it's qi, uh, which translates in English to heart-mind. So in mm. both of those philosophies, talking about your mind, so what's happening in your head, is not any different than what's talking about what's happening in your heart. Uh, which to us, you know, we'd say like, oh, like, you gotta have heart, you gotta put your passion into this, you gotta put your passion into it. Where I think what's interesting is that we distinguish what tends to be passion or heart-centered and what tends to be mind, which tends to be logically centered, uh, where there they say, no, no, you want to align those two things. And if you're not aligning those two things, something's wrong. Um, or we create those distinctions, which then inherently changes our actions, yeah. uh, which then also makes it harder to be able to connect to these things. Um, not to mention the giant eye rolls when someone's talking about you know chakras or any of that kind of stuff. Yeah, and honestly, I, I get that visual because there's... And this is, this is one of the things that I find so, um, I don't like, I get, I get excited about new things and there's, uh, yeah, like, like you, you've interviewed, uh, Jerry Pollock and the first time that I had uh, learned about a structured water. It was like uh, it, it like broke my brain and I couldn't sleep for a day. It was it was just like so um, foundationally like novel and changing that but you don't get that impact if you don't start with uh, you know the foundation that we start with. So I, I really appreciate um, those things and yeah, as far as like how to, how to communicate those things and how to like change people's minds um, or open people's minds to new perspectives. Um, it's, it's a strange thing, but I guess the, the reason I was, I don't, I don't know, going off on a tangent. Um, talking about like your your brain and your heart and now like there's new research suggesting that most of our neurotransmitters are actually in our gut mm -hmm. we have like more nerves and stuff going on in our gut so it might be that we don't even know what the brain does like we know that we can't live without it <laughs> and there's there's certain um you know we can identify abnormalities and patterns that indicate like this person might be feeling this or seeing this or experiencing this. Um, but we've measured that the heart has the strongest bioelectric field. That's where most of our, our uh, yeah, bioelectric and like magnetic field seems to be emanating from. And then the gut seems to be doing most of the thinking um, yeah, it's, it's just a really, I've, I find the time that we're living in to be really exciting and really confusing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so no, much information. Well, it's too much. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, some of the things that to pivot off of what you're saying is Stephen Hawking has this phrase that he said that the you know, 20th century. Uh, was the century of, of information 
and that the 21st century is going to be this century of com- complexity, uh, which mm. he really means is complexity science. Uh, but what I take that as, and plus also if you're really wanting into astrological shit, they say this is like the age of chaos, um, you know, in the, as far as the, the Zodiac it. and the procession of the <laughs> equinox, which is also crazy. Yeah. Um, but I, I mean, there's, there's so much, it's the truthful paradox is there's so much information. It's impossible to sift it through. Uh, yeah. And the other thing, too, is once again, going back to the whole enlightenment, I think what the scientific method has gotten us is really amazing ways to see if what we're, what the impact of little things that we're doing. But what that has now trained us against is the fact that everything is, should be taken as one. So, you know, the, the concept I always use as the example is a yin yang mm-hmm. is black and white with the, the center of the one being the driving factor of the other. But the whole purpose of that symbol is to say that neither of those exists. It's all as one. So to divide them or try to go in, because if you go into the white dot within the black tadpole, it's going to be the same thing that you're seeing again and again at infinitum. Right. Um, right. And when it comes to, well, what's driving our actions? I mean, they've found people that have 75% of their brain missing and they didn't know it and they were living totally normal lives. So yeah. what, you know, what is what with that? Uh, and as far as the, you know, the gut biome, and how much you feeding that processed food is going to drive your actions towards eating that more, or even just in general, how much of the, the connection between your gut and your mind happens, um, or just how many neurons are in your fucking heart. Uh, it's kind of, it's to me, it's absolutely crazy that the second most you know amount of neurons that you have in your body is in your heart, which of course is probably yeah, it's probably to to drive the the pumping because it's what's most important, but also at the same time. What else is going on? Because it, it only needs a handful to do that. Why does it have so many? Yeah. Um, why, why? Right. Why would that be? Yeah, which is crazy. <laughs> uh, and, you know, the if I was to look at this from a complexity lens, it's, well, you have to look at that whole fucking system. You can't just yeah. focus on just the brain. You have to mm-hmm. look at the whole person. Um, and when it gets starting getting slippery is how much of the environment around the person drives the person. Which I think is huge. And even the environment in the person. Like there's all this research now on on microbiomes, the the gut microbiome. Like we've got a microbiome on our skin, Mm -hmm. in our hair, like in our mouth. Each part of us is made up of billions. The number of non-human cells in our bodies outnumbers human cells by like a a factor. Like it's... It's bizarre, and this is, like, that sort of concept has, um, I think it's been one of the most interesting things to me, just, like, in my life of learning, and also, it's by far the biggest blind spot in Western education and science, is the, the reductionist means of thinking, you know, it's helpful for a lot of things, but the reality is it doesn't it doesn't capture the picture of anything uh so i it's it's sort of it reminds me of like quantum physics like okay we've got these big rules that apply to things and it seems like it makes sense but if we really start you know the closer you look the more it falls apart um and that's, yeah, it's, it's something, um, it's a humbling thing because I feel the same way with, uh, you know, learning about soil biology. 
we're identifying all these species. There's, you know, 90% that are undescribed. And um, this, just because it's kind of on my mind, I'm learning uh, a bit about the rhizophagy cycle. So basically, mm. like, plants eat whole microbes. This is being demonstrated, and, like, we can watch it. And basically what happens is entire microbes are basically eaten by plant roots. They dissolve their cell walls with superoxide. So now you've got wallless bacteria basically living inside of plant roots. They leak out all their nutrients. The plants use those. And then they'll spit them back out into the soil as uh, basically like undifferentiated cells in some cases. Um, they'll use the, the exudates, the sugars from plant roots to rebuild their cell walls. They'll go out and, you know, collect more nutrients and the cycle continues. They come what? back to the roots to like feed on exudates and they get sucked up and broken down all their stuff taken out and then spit back out to it's this it's insane and this idea that like we can identify all of the things on the planet it's it's absurd <laughs> and it feels like in some cases like yeah it's super interesting i love that idea like gotta catch them all <laughs> to ta tag them all, man. I think it's so cool. And epigenetics, like genetic expression changes how we see things, especially on that small of a scale. So what's the point? <laughs> yeah. If, if things can literally transmute into what we would consider different species, then why are we wasting so much time? <laughs> <laughs> well... <laughs> Everything's useful to a point, but I think once yeah. you start uh, extrapolating, making conclusions of it, that's where it starts getting it to be an issue. Uh, at least trying to make it ground truth, right? Like if you're trying yeah. to make things ground truth, it's yeah. just going to change too much. I think the only constant is is change. Um, you know, I'm reading this this book by Felipe Fernandez Armesto, who's been on the pod. Um, I'm actually going to have dinner with him in a couple of weeks, and I wanted to read this book before. Uh, he mentioned it to me uh, one of the times we were talking last, and it's called uh, A Foot in the River. You know that okay. parable? Uh, no. It's like, I think it's Heraclitus who's the first, in, first one who said it. Um, it's, uh, no man puts his foot into a river uh, and is the same for the river changes and so does the man. Hmm. So essentially, like, you put your foot, it's going to have different water that's running over it, but also you're going to be, you're changing all the time. Your, mm -hmm. your personality is changing. I mean, if you really want to get down to the phys physiological, you're changing. Your cells are changing. It's like the ship that's constantly changing its parts. That is it the same ship? Yeah. We're like that, like, every seven or 11 years, something like that. Um, yeah, yeah. Somewhere in there, you have entirely new cells. Yeah. Like, yeah, 100%. Yeah. <laughs> but the, the, the whole book is about, you know, what the fuck is change? He doesn't say mm. fuck. He's much more polite than I am. <laughs> but, uh, you know, what is change and what's the, the history of change and how, do we, how is it categorized? Um, and what it's really making me think of is um, there's this philosopher called Lucretius who wrote On the Nature of Things, uh, very influential into the entire scientific method, honestly. And really what he was doing at the time of like the turn of the century, uh, you know, pretty much year zero-ish like around, uh, around then um, in Rome when there was a huge rebirth of culture, um, he was really codifying a lot of the Epicureans of before him mm. and he was essentially documenting it in his time. So he gets uh, credited for a lot of things, but he was mostly just retelling it 
although it's pretty amazing. Sure. Um, but one of the things he talks about is, well, one of the things is that the word Adam comes from the Epicureans. And they, mm. they actually say everything's broken down. If you keep going down and down and down, it's going to have atoms. Those atoms have a base set of elements. Those elements c- combine together, create the world around us, which is insane that they were able to come to that conclusion. And then yeah. several hundred years later, almost actually almost two millennia later, they figure out, oh, yeah, no, it's, that's actually exactly how it works. Um, crazy. Insane. Um, but what they say is that there's only two things, and there's matter and void. So mm-hmm. there's a space between things, and then there are things. Um, now, after reading Felipe's book, I actually think that it's uh, void and change. And that's all that there is. Because mm. everything is constantly changing. Everything is constantly evolving in some way. You know, if you really want to get down to it, everything is actually just energy which mm-hmm. once again sounds woo but it's not you know everything no. is just energy and motion that's what it is yeah um if it's sound waves because sound waves only exist because there's actually things we can't see between the two of us that are you know uh moving and really in in ma- mandalas like it looks like a mandala if you actually see what sound looks like it's it's a mandala yeah uh, which is once again insane that they figured that out um <laughs> like the mandala for ohm if you actually look at ohm and somatics it looks exactly the same which is mind-blowing uh, oh. somatics is the visualization of sound cool um but such as to say you know if it's epigenetics if it's how things interact you know the only constant in that is going to be change and the one thing in it just like you were saying with quantum mechanics you we have this this classical view of everything or break things down to a smaller and smaller level or even a bigger and bigger level yeah. you realize oh shit we actually don't know anything there's this whole other realm of things that we couldn't figure out um and I think the the truth has to be the same of, you know, plants. Like I had no idea about that whole like zombification of microbes, which is the way I'm putting it on. Yeah. Uh, which is insane. I like you can, so I, in the podcast that I was listening to, um, yeah, they describe it as plants farming microbes, which is kind of exactly what's happening. They're, they're treating microbes like livestock. Oh my God. That's crazy. It's nuts. Yeah. And <clears throat> Um, yeah, like I, (laughs) and this goes to sort of my, my aversion to labels and identities too. Um, and I feel like I'm, I'm always kind of picking on veganism. Uh, you know, I, I appreciate the, the consideration and the ethic, but I, there are so many like holes and I think the reality is yeah, no one no one lives in a bubble. We all need other living things to live. Life begets life and life depends on life. And maybe in, you know, very special circumstances life can arise from non-life, but like you're saying it's just energy. That's really what life is. So, yeah, plants plants eat other living things whole. <laughs> yeah, and then spit them out. <laughs> and then spit them out. Um, I mean, the the soil is an entire ecosystem where there's constant eating and death and birth. Uh, even like, I mean, fermentation. Uh, I'm I'm getting really into fermentation. Got a, a buddy at some of the markets, restorative roots, uh, that does fantastic fermented things, but. These are all like if if we want to get uh, turn back to food, um, like living things 
as close to living as possible is one way of increasing your vitality. And I think, um, <clears throat> yeah, because, because we deal with a lot of, I mean, I'm, I'm not really raising any, uh, I think I just accidentally turned the microphone off. I turned it back on. No, that's okay. Okay. I think it's still there too, so, yeah, that's so we got another backup. So. All right. Um, yeah, uh, we we get a lot of you know support from from the vegan community, selling a lot of mushrooms and vegetables, which I appreciate immensely. And um, I think what what I'm trying to bring to markets through the Edifon Farm is uh, healthy options to support really any you know <laughs> any anyone who's eating fresh food. Um, But yeah, I guess I'll just because I because I always find it interesting to like debate the the theories and the ethics around veganism. But that whole concept of I th I think for most people, the definition is not consuming animal products or um, the basically not like taking from another person's or another being's labor something like that but i feel like that that theory just breaks down so quickly if plants are eating microbes if the soil is alive because of cycles of death and birth if you know we all use smartphones which are the product of people suffering on another continent uh, if bread is the product of fermentation which is the labor of microbes then like the have you read braiding sweetgrass no but i have it in my list of books actually it's it's great um i feel a little bit trite like referencing it but it's it's such a good primer on um what what i would consider a lot of the ideals of like you know pre-western cultures um, indigenous American cultures and the role what one of the messages that I took from that book is the the job of humans is to appreciate accept the gifts that are given by nature and all of the players and like just be thankful for them use them like take them use them to the the best of your abilities and we we have a lot of like superpowers as human beings um we can we can learn about natural cycles and we have like a huge ability to like expedite those things and and magnify them um but i think Tossing out like we cannot eat meat because it's it means death. I don't think that's fair. And I think it's another form of like a phobia of death that we have in our culture, too. Uh, and death is always going to be scary if we stay afraid of it. So. Yeah, uh, a lot of I think a lot of the the ethics and theory around 
growing food and living in a place and understanding like our role in not just the environment but like time um i find a lot of at least uh robin wall camera i i think she's like from the potawatomi um nation. i don't know nation i know there's there's different sects i'm not gonna act like i'm i know all this stuff <laughs> i'm a white dude um well, well just to hang on some of what you're saying though yeah. like um you know so I'll, I'll before i like respond in earnest is there's this great walt whitman quote where he says uh oh you say i contradict myself very well i contradict myself uh for i'm human i exist in multitudes yeah so i think all of us have innate hypocrisy so you know if it's veganism or something else i think it's we're going to have areas that are blind we're blind to because mm. we're, we're ignorant to our own ignorance um but with that being said um also to give a shout out to vegans before i maybe come at you a little bit is you guys make the best coffee like the vegans make the absolute best coffee i don't know what it is what dude go to vegan coffee shops and you're going to be blown away uh, what's what's the difference i have no idea but i just know that every <laughs> single vegan coffee shop i go to i get excited because i know it's gonna be top notch huh. dagger mountain Dagger Mountain's vegan. I don't understand no why vegan coffee is so much better, but they totally make the best coffee. I bring my own cream because I'm a snob like that. Um, what kind but, of cream? Oh, I'm getting like raw cream for sure. Oh, yeah, okay. no, I'm, right, I'm yeah. super snobby. Yeah. yeah. No, I look like I'm like a, a bro-ish dude, but I'm actually incredibly <laughs> snobby. Um, what, what vessel do you carry your cream in? Oh, my God. I actually want to create like a crypt, like a, what is that called? Uh, <laughs> I, I joke about this with my wife all the time. Uh, I genuinely have sketches for uh, oh, like cry, yeah, oh yeah, I'm sketching out ways of using dry ice to create to like keep my cream cold in like a little tube, yeah. so that I can bring it places. This is how snobby I'm getting is I'm literally sketching out dry ice contraptions to cry, bring my rock cryo creamer. Cryo creamer, yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, this is literally what I'm talking about. Uh, so uh, this is this is where I'm at on the spectrum, um, but. No, like, as far as, like, um, yes, I do think some of it is an anxiety towards death, for sure. And, you know, if you're going to choose a path, like, I think, once again, to, you know, to take from Taoism, you know, like, Taoism's big book is the Tao Te Ching, and that really is, it's translated as the way. Mm -hmm. It really should be translated as a way, because it's not saying it's a scripture. Mm -hmm. You know, there's many paths to get to places, right? Yeah. So there's many paths that I would say to leaving, living a harmonious life with nature and thriving individually and letting the environment around you thrive because you know as ron good you know uh, he's a tribal chairman who i've had on the pod is he would put it um is that humans are stewards of our environment yes and i think it's i mean that's not appropriating or we should be we should be right it's not that appropriating uh north you know north american natives or indigenous folks by saying that because i mean even in christianity says you're supposed to be a steward of the land, which I think is totally true. I think yeah. we have an amazing ability to be plastic culturally and physically to yeah. completely mold the world around us. Um, and I think it's innately we're going to do it regardless. So why not doing yeah. intentionally? Yeah. And I think that's the basis of veganism is they want to intentionally through their actions do that. I think the big hole in that is, well, one, you're choosing some life is more important than others. So because mm. something is breathing... You're saying it's breathing in the way that we do with cardiovascular. Right. Breathing with a heart and lungs. Right. You're saying it's more important than breathing with, you know, uh, you know, uh, chloroplast. Yeah. Stoma and all that stuff. Right. (laughs) Uh, And the cycle is going to change. But the thing is, is in order to have. 
Okay, here's one. There's a great example. Organic <clears throat> bananas. I mm. eat organic bananas. What I am tacitly knowing that when I choose organic bananas is that there's actually more chemicals and more environmental destruction in making organic bananas because they burn the forest and the jungle around them and they constantly are shooting pesticides and chemicals around the organic farms so that the organic bananas can actually grow no kidding. without being touched. So actually it is more destructive huh. to have organic bananas than GMO bananas to the environment, right? I'm Glad consciously I have not been doing that. Yeah, well, I'm consciously doing it. <laughs> and I'm okay with it because I'm choosing that I'm saying my health is what I believe my health is is more important than that, which sure. should I be? I don't know. I'm going to have an ethical conundrum some point about that for sure. I mean, I'm already aware of it and trying to break down what to do about it. Uh, but I mean, you know, if you want a vegan or an organic, you know, farm and you want to be eating that, um, that's totally well and good, but there's still going to be, you know, equipment that's going to go through. Yeah. And unless it's done to be a permaculture, you're going to be destroying field mice and you're going to be really having a lot of destruction to it in order to do that. Um, and then also where is your protein coming from? Because proteins is most likely to be more processed, which means more, energy inputs you know yeah. there's it, it's a complicated web mm-hmm. where if you ate locally and ethically or you know i guess ethics is a slippery slope here but yeah you know pasture-raised beef for example is actually sequestering carbon it's taking mm-hmm. things out it's uh fostering better soil production yeah it's it's creating a circle of life in which you're saying yeah i'm dipping my toes and being pretty barbaric about it but it the thing that I prefer, you know, we used to not eat meat for a while. And the two things that I noticed after eating meat again was one, I put on 20 pounds in like four months, like out of nowhere. And you look at me now, like, how could it be 20 pounds lighter? Oh, dude, I looked gaunt Yeah. Uh, before, yeah. which is kind of funny to me. Um, <laughs> and uh, the other thing, you know, was my mental clarity was just yeah. so much better. Um, and the thing, you know, in our society is it's not sustainable in any means like the cobalt mines that are, you know, getting the, the, the smartphone battery, yeah. you know, that we need in order to do that or, uh, the destruction of, well, now we can't pollute domestically. So we export our pollution right. internationally. There, there's no way in which we can live sustainably right now. So we have to choose which ways we do it. And I yeah. think we're inherently social and status oriented beings. So I think that's where a lot of the religiosity of veganism come, as well as the religiosity yeah. of what I'm describing, which is eating pasture raised. You know, like the people, like I have people in my family that are like, I need meat. I, I can't eat a meal without meat. Yeah. Like, what's meat? And I'm like, well, I mean, I kind of feel you on that. But at the same time, uh-huh. like it's it's not all, you know, you can have it other ways. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, um, sort of the theme of, of our talk so far i think is no matter there nothing is perfect there's flaws to everything so uh confined animal operations awful brutal truly horrific yeah and the meat that we get from them is terrible terrible garbage it like you you can find plenty of studies on uh, I just listened to a talk with this guy who's looking at uh, nutrient density of foods. And that's a weird thing to try to define. They haven't really landed on a definition, even though they've been working on this for like 15 years. You feed people 
um, confined animal operation beef. And an hour later, you can see a spike in cortisol and like blood pressure rises there. There are very direct impacts. Um, very, very clear, like negative health impacts from poor quality meat. Uh, and it's, it's so much you, you are what you eat. You can eat bad vegetables too. Uh, bad oils, like fats are really important. And GMO canola oil is not good for you. You will feel like your health will degrade if that is the fat that you are eating. Uh, and also canola oil is rapeseed oil that's food grade. Did you know that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I learned that recently. I'm like, what? This is fucking lubricant. Uh-huh. They just rebranded it. Yeah. It's like it's like a Chilean sea bass. It's just Patagonia mudfish. They just like, completely <laughs> rebranded it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, and all of this, I mean, like globalism is a miracle. We live in the most luxurious era at it seems in human history and you know it it affords uh, picking on veganism a little bit more uh it affords us to be able to import coconut oil i love coconut oil (laughs) uh coconut water like all these all these exotic products bananas avocados all these things that are really wonderful and can be really good for you. Um, moving them across the planet, incentivizing poor management practices causes environmental harm on like a pretty vast scale. So while, while globalism is like truly amazing and I don't think that it's fair to say like, Nope, can't do that anymore. Uh, we can't, it's not going to last the way that we've been doing it. And I feel like that's a thing that we can all sort of recognize and we don't want to admit because party's over if we'd say like, okay, no more goods from across an ocean. That's been the basis for the world for, yeah, since, since big boats moving around <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah no i think it's a it's a inherent part of our faculties that humans want to stick their head in the sand if it yeah. means that everything has to change yeah. because i mean most of the way that we eat is a dime domino i mean if it's i mean the soil health only has 50 more years left or whatever it is right. um or i mean like can, okay so uh i jokingly say this to people when they when i make a comment and i'm like uh uh i'm probably the crunchiest person that you know which is hilarious because I am well aware that I look like a, I'm like a six foot two broy dude. Like I look, I'm like, I'm going to play basketball listening to mumble rap. We were just talking about, <laughs> yeah, right? yeah. Like that's totally how I look. I get that. Uh, <laughs> but I'm actually probably the crunchiest person that most people know, like where I will actually refuse and skip a meal. If the only thing that's often offered to me is uh, conventionally raised animals or, or, or yeah. vegetables. Cause I'm, I also know I'm probably gonna get sick from it. Cause so mm-hmm. much of my diet doesn't have that. That yeah. like the other week we were visiting some family, I ate out some chicken fingers and I felt so horrible that yeah. I ended up vomiting because of uh, the fact that I ate something from like a bar food, right? Which is just insane. Um, such as to say, you know, our environment around us 
from the global structure we are in is unsustainable. Yeah. But the second you start pulling at some of those foundations, the whole thing has to crumble. And then how can we reorient ourselves around this, which I think most people feel innately and it feels like this precipice, this cliff that we're coming up against. So I feel like people are more reaching more and more into these tribal manners. If it's, you know, I'm super into this sect of politics or I'm right. super into this thing and I'm just going to completely stick my head in the sand. Yeah. Cause otherwise it's going to be just too much to handle. I mean, I yeah. feel like it is too much to handle. It is. Yeah, <laughs> it is. It is. Um, and that's, I like a big part of the mission of the farm work that we're trying to do is basically offer like new, new solutions like okay we can't necessarily be importing all of our favorite things from around the world whether we like it or not at some point that's probably going to end maybe in our lifetime but i would i would bet a lot on the next generation um it's just it just can't keep happening or everything's gonna break and that's gonna be like way worse. So the the idea of, um, yeah, in some of the markets, like I've, I've been kind of known as the, the weird produce guy and a big part of that, like I'm not trying to grow a lot of things that aren't uh, or are so out of place that like they require a bunch of infrastructure or like weird inputs. Um, that said, I would like to start growing ginger and turmeric. I think that'd be cool. But uh, like fermentation, I think is one of those solutions. Identifying weird or you know uh, more or less unknown food crops that are either local or can can come from um, sort of analogous climate zones. So like here in Northwest Indiana, we are really similar to certain areas of Eastern Europe. So as far as like looking for um, new foods or basically it's, it's about developing more of a local culture. Uh, I think that is the solution. And it doesn't have to be like, oh no, our life is gonna get worse. Like, okay, we can't, maybe we don't get to have mangoes, but hey, guess what? We've got pawpaws. Like, they're amazing. And nobody's, most of the people living here in Indiana have not heard of the Indiana banana, which is bonkers. It just, I think, I think, um, yeah, there's, I just I don't I don't like the I don't like institutions. So like the the government, uh, capitalism, like all these big umbrella things. They're in a lot of ways, you know. I, I guess I'm kind of conspiracy theory ish, but the reality is a lot of those things are true and based on like actual things that happened. Um, there's a great documentary called Seed: The Untold Story, and they talk about i think it was specifically india um and i believe it was monsanto oh, it was just the one where you can't uh, harvest the seeds they actually don't have the rights to the seeds that uh that plants produce that's part of it but essentially the practice was uh green revolution 
go to these rural areas that have been, you know, subsistence farming. They, they weren't killing it, but like they were fine. Offer them new seeds. These, these are improved varieties. They're going to do way better. Uh, okay, sure. We'll, we'll buy those. Mind you, these people have been, you know, developing their own fertility programs, um, keeping their own seeds. So they've got local genetics that they, they've been working. Uh, replace them with GMO seeds or, you know, first generation hybrids, whatever, things that aren't native to that area. Um, these things require fertilizers now. So you got to buy our fertilizers. Harvest time comes around. Uh, those seeds, if you decide to replant them, if you are allowed to replant them, they will not produce the same plant that you just grew because they're either like F1 hybrids or they're GMOs and they simply will not germinate. That's part of the tinkering. Um, so part of the practice also was like they would buy all of their seed stock, uh, these subsistence farmers. So like you guys don't need that stuff anymore. We'll, you know, we'll, we'll give you a couple bucks for all your seed. Uh, the next year rolls around like, ooh, that was really expensive to buy all that fertilizer and those new seeds, and now they're not working, but we don't have any of our seeds. So what we would do was go to our neighbor to, you know, share seeds. That's what we've done for hundreds of years. Oh, no, they went to our neighbor's farm, too. So these companies went around and basically dismantled the entire agricultural system in, uh, you know, five years. Those things happen in all sorts of aspects. Uh, I was just listening to a, a really interesting podcast on like baby food. How did we feed children before Gerber? We, we did, we figured it out. Uh, kids are really capable of things. How did women give birth before hospitals? They just did. It's because we're capable. And a lot of the institutions and systems, I think the primary goal has been to convince us that we are not capable and that we prioritize convenience over true power and freedom. And that's been the real success of the American government is convincing people that we value freedom over everything and we simply don't it's it's all a ruse to trick us into kind of becoming like uh you know the the worker bee consumer little robots go to work get your money you need money to buy that stuff and uh you definitely want that stuff. You really, really want it. And rinse and repeat. It's it's a real shame. So I think that's kind of as far as um, yeah, like ha having having a kid getting older, sort of trying to figure out what is it that uh, you want your impact or your like work to be about. For me, that's that's been a big one. Is sort of understanding the pitfalls that we've been duped into and like what are viable options i think local culture and local food are 
needed. Yeah, no, 100%. In a, in a big way. Yeah. No, and I mean, I think even if you were to say things are conspiracies that are true and how much of it is intentional or not, it seems as if a lot of it is intentional. A lot of it is to keep people into consuming. <laughs> yeah. And the thing that I would say is that is I think it's a natural function of institutions to perpetuate themselves. They're going to Absolutely. want to keep going. So mm-hmm. if it's Monsanto going in and selling seeds, they're going to want to perpetuate that economy for themselves. Yeah. If they, you know, intentionally or unintentionally are screwing over the people there, I think that you can even take the morality or intentionality out of it and say that they're going to want to keep going. Or if it's, you know, uh, the government instituting schools that are on a factory model to be able to get people that are into a factory system to get them habituated to waking up at a certain time to being do do what they're told to ask <laughs> yeah. if they can use a bathroom yeah. you know to be in habituating you to sitting at a desk or, or you know on a factory line um you know if those things were intentional to to have the government be more control or not um, which i could think i can make up you know argument both ways regardless i think the institution of government and the institution of uh, big business is going to want to keep instantiating itself and, and continuing to go forward. Um, and, you know, I, all, all that we have, the only constant is time is going to pass and, and what do we do with it, which I think is, is awesome what you're doing. So, you know, to hang on that and to go back to that and hang on it for a second. So what are you doing as far as, uh, you know, some consultations that you're doing as part of Edifon Ad- Farm? You know, what are the, some of the crops that you're growing? Who's the other founder sure. you have for it? How do you how do you get all the mushrooms that you have and all of that? Yeah. Um, so it's uh, it's kind of a family operation. I'm. Yeah, ju- juggling all the stuff, but primarily it's it's me you run around doing things. My wife is helping at some markets and uh, harvesting when when she's got time as well. Um, same with my daughter. Every once in a while, she picks some That's berries great. for like five minutes and then <laughs> she gets bored. She's she, a child. She eats most of them. It's fine. Um, Sound a little salty. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, what, the consultations, like if I was oh, to have sure. a consultation, what would that be? So I've, I've been offering the consultations for a few years now and yeah, it's, it's been pretty sporadic, but generally, um, I, I do have a permaculture design certification, um, which ultimately is, is kind of just like a general in permaculture. The main rule is like everything is conditional. So I've worked with a couple of people in Chicago and generally how I'll go about that is like, well, what do you want? Do you want to sort of reduce your carbon footprint? Are you, do you have dietary restrictions and you want to figure out how to make that like easier on yourself? Um, do you want to grow more of your own food? And that can be anywhere from like setting up a garden in a yard or on a balcony, uh, setting up like a microgreen situation on a kitchen table or in a closet, uh, growing mushrooms indoors. Like I've, the consultation is sort of, I spent a long time doing a little bit of all of these things. So, um, if anyone's curious about a thing that they've seen on the internet, like there's a good chance I've tried it. Uh, and just, yeah, skipping some of the headache, but ultimately, 
uh, a lot of the consultation stuff has been setting up some gardens or just generally talking about how can you start taking some of your own like food and nutrition into your own hands. Pretty cool. Um, how would you define permaculture? Um, I think the original definition was like uh, permanent agriculture. So sustainable, I suppose. At this point, there's a lot um, in the agriculture sphere around not just sustainable because it's not good enough, uh, but regenerative. So I think that's always sort of been in my mind too. Um, sustainable isn't, it's not good enough. Why, why would we sustain when we can make things better? Uh, so permaculture for me at this point is basically figuring out how to provide more of your own resources in the place and in the time that you live with with an eye towards the future um you know not not just your own future but your kids and your neighbor's kids and the trees that maybe haven't been planted yet you know all all of these things and that's another tip from Mostly like the braiding sweetgrass, but I think it's amongst a lot of different indigenous cultures is like thinking seven generations ahead. Uh, if you're not thinking that far ahead, then we we just have a really strong tendency to think in very immediate terms. And yeah, you're you're going to like run into a problem at some point. And if you haven't thought ahead then either you're going to suffer or your kids or your grandkids. Yeah. Most companies think in quarters, which is maddening. Right. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I like uh, Mark Shepard a lot and yeah. he talks about regenerative agriculture, which yeah. is great. You know, leaving something better than the way that it was before. Yeah. Um, which I think is really, really fascinating. Um, and there's so much room for it. Yeah. I think the, the other like big, focus for me in thinking about permaculture is like what what resources do you have available in your general you know environment um and a lot of that needs to be funneled into soil organic matter because ultimately like when we first moved into our property, it was it was a big lawn, and I think something like 15 years prior, it had been pasture for sheep. Uh, I sent some of that. I sent a couple cores in for sampling, and our organic matter was at like 1.2% or something. Good agricultural soil. I think if, if you're buying like farmland, you should be shooting for like between three and five percent but if you start digging into like regenerative farms that are really really managing their soil and producing like a shitload of food they're getting up towards 10 percent at a large scale like there's there's other issues as far as environmental uh pollution and degradation but if we're concerned about carbon sequestration the soil is 
where that needs to go because that's where it came out of. You know, there's there's other sources. Burning fossil fuels has added a lot, but it's been losing all of that from the soil. The the dust bowl of the what I don't know. Nineteen hundreds and like nineteen ten or something. Yeah. yeah, I'm bad at history. Twenties, whatever. Um, the the prairies. I think it's estimated that soil organic matter was in the like ten to fifteen percent range. And we turn that all into dust, which means basically zero. We lost all of that carbon that basically holds what one of the um, permaculture, the, the teacher that I got my certification from, um, his analogy for like all these different elements of the soil, the organic matter and the carbon is like your hard drive. That's, that's sort of the, basis on which you can build all the other stuff if you don't have carbon you've you've got nowhere for the other like minerals and nutrients to bind to to hold on everything is just going to wash out it's carbon structures that are sticky and will hold on to both water and nutrients and minerals so once that's gone now you're really addicted to water soluble nutrients Whereas if you've got a huge bank of carbon, you don't need to add a lot of fertility because there's microbes that are living off of that carbon. Like we talked about, those things are literally getting eaten whole. Uh, That carbon stores water. It stores huge amounts of nitrogen that get released in the spring from the thaw and dying microbes and lightning that fixes atmospheric nitrogen like this (laughs) the crazy thing with permaculture is like oh all of these things can work and i don't need dow i don't need monsanto why do we think that we need these these companies it's absurd um another thing that i've gotten really into which is like the primary focus of the fertility on the farm is uh, Korean natural farming and the offshoot, which is, uh, I've always pronounced it Jadam. Um, Korean natural farming is the gist of it, from my understanding, is it's fungal based. So you're um, sort of the, there's a couple different things, but it's really, it's a lot more delicate. It's super beautiful. one of the strategies is basically using like partially cooked rice, set that in a breathable box out in a healthy forest and culture microbes from that. There's a couple steps of expanding that stuff out, but basically you're catching indigenous microorganisms and using those to bring back to your farm to revitalize the soil ecosystem. Wow. Uh, some yeah, other other shepherd talks about that too, actually, where if you're, uh, it's becoming planting. really big. Yeah. Well, he does it in a different way where it's, if you're planting, uh, black walnuts or oaks or American chestnuts, um, to go to a place where they are growing wild mm-hmm. and scoop up even just a handful of soil, put that in the hole and then put the plant, you know, the tree on top of it, that the yeah. microbes that are going to be in there are actually going to create and harvest in that realm. Yeah. But I haven't heard of it in this rice way. That's amazing. Keep going. Yeah. So the the Korean 
Korean natural farming, and it's become really big in like Hawaii. Um, there's a guy, Chris Trump, who I believe he started in like a macadamia nut orchard. So it works particularly well for perennial crops and tree crops. Uh, and that was sort of written and codified by Master Cho. His son made Shadam, which uh, I've also seen people describe this on uh, the internet. Korean natural farming is like a symphony. Jadam is like garage rock. So where Korean natural farming, everything generally is going to end up smelling good. Uh, you can consume a lot of the inputs. Jadam is just putrefaction. It basically everything smells awful, <laughs> but it's it's bacterial dominated, which um, annual plants, vegetables, a lot of fruits, they're annuals, and they tend to do better in a bacterially dominated soil. Uh, they want fast growth and they don't necessarily need like woody growth. So, uh, like the most basic one that I use is I've got some comfrey plants. Uh, you grab some grass, some comfrey leaves, shove it in a bucket with some water, maybe a little bit of sea salt, maybe a little bit of like good compost or soil and just cover that, let it, uh, anaerobically ferment for, I don't know, a couple of weeks, a month, and it smells awful, but it's just straight liquefied fermented plant matter. So... Which then you can use as fertilizer, I take it? Right. Oh, that's fascinating. So Jadam also has some microbial inputs, but for the most part, the way that I understand it is Jadam is really strong for nutrition. Uh, they've got some like i i have not gotten very into the pest control element but they've got solutions for like tons of different diseases and pests and it's all a lot of it is fermentation and like very specific nutrients um man i i just stumbled upon someone making um an IMO, indigenous microorganisms, but um, like a pest control one. So instead of just using rice, they use like 30% of uh, Japanese beetle bodies. Put that in the forest, let things grow on it. And that works as like a pest control because you're culturing microbes that are digesting the exoskeletons of insects. You spray that on living insects and it will eat them. Oh. Wild. Paul Stamets was working on something like that, that everyone was all like, dude, I'd get, I'd get sent this link like every other week for a while. It's just like, Oh my gosh, this guy's going to save the world. Oh, Paul Stamets. Yeah. Yeah. I have a giant eye roll about him because his yeah. products are shit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> No, I, I, I think I, it's so funny that he's catching a lot of flack now from uh, sort of like smaller, just like making fun of his products for just being brown rice flour. That's all they are. No, yeah. they're, it's ridiculous. Uh, I'm uh, sure there's some benefits, but for, if I'm, if, if I'm going to recommend like a mushroom product, uh, shout, shout out to Real Mushrooms. I think they do mm. excellent stuff and it's 100% fruiting body instead of the 
you know, rice flour. Yeah, I like I like Symbiotica. They're really expensive, so it's yeah. mostly on people's price range. But they're very good because they concentrate everything into just like a liposomal, you know, oh, thing cool. you can just shoot. Um, so it's a lot easier. But yeah, just just to clue people in, <clears throat> Paul Stamets got very famous because of Joe Rogan. He's done a lot for the mushrooming community to kind of take it out of, you know, uh, how do I put this? Out of the closet and more into the mainstream, shine some light on it. However, yeah. he has a company that's called, what is this company? Fungi Perfecta. No, it's the, the one that you can buy like at the nature stores. Um, Host Defense. Host Defense. Yeah. So he's got a company called Host Defense. Now, there's a lot of really interesting things like with li- uh, Lion's Mane for brain health. There's also like psilocybin, which is the magic mushrooms, which also has some really great things for brain health. But let's just keep things above board. Like Rishi seems to be really good for, you know, blood pressure, blood things. Lion's Mane seems to be really good for brain, neurogenesis, all those type of things, um, which he's done a great job of propagating. However, it's the fruiting body, which is what comes out that you, everyone knows as mushrooms and what they look like. That's where all of the, the, the good stuff is. What Paul Stamets sells is the mycelium, which is essentially the root structure, the, I guess, for lack of a better word, root structure of mm-hmm. it that grind, he grinds up and puts into pills. So he's selling something, labeling it as helpful, yeah. but most likely is just, like you said, brown rice powder. Yeah. And I think his argument is that, like, they are testing and they're finding, you know, some of the beneficials that they want out of that. And I think it's mostly metabolites from the mycelium uh but all that said as far as like potency of product that, that, yes. re- realistically you're getting like at least 30 percent brown rice flour yeah in in and, your pill and pound for pound i mean from him from a business perspective he can cut off the top of the lion's mane sell that at a market and then yeah. have the rest of that in there which whatever um <laughs> <laughs> good for him uh the uh the interest that's so fascinating i've never heard of uh korean farming like that or or any of those things um i think one of the things that i find so fascinating about permaculture is creating that uh, use that word again that symphony of the way that all the organisms and microorganisms work with each other so one of the things that i found so fascinating is nitrogen fixers Mm-hmm. Where you can plant, like in Indiana, redbud. Redbud is an amazing nitrogen fixer. Yeah. You plant what run redbud tree, redbud tree with three apple trees. Well, now you don't have to put in chemical nitrogen into that soil. It's gonna, it's gonna produce it for you, which is amazing. Right. Um, or like phosphorus. Uh, I think it's mallow plants. Mm-hmm. Uh, I produce a lot of phosphorus, so you can grow mallow plants, cut them up, and just throw them on top of a pile of other plants. It'll decompose and have all that in there. I've never heard anything with this fermentation process, which is amazing. Um, so how do you do these practices when it comes to producing your mushrooms? Because are mushrooms like the biggest thing that you, you grow? Uh, so with the mushrooms, I w- I've been growing my own for like seven, eight years. Um, for basically once we started selling them at markets, it was like two weeks in, like, oh, I need to be working full-time to produce as many as we need. Um, So Windy City Mushroom is who I've been working with for a couple of years now to basically get the vast majority of our mushrooms. Um, And they're they're outside of Midway in Chicago, so it's all still, like, local. You know, try to never hide that from anyone. Um, And... So yeah, people people often ask like, are these are these uh, hydroponic? Like, different. So plants, mushrooms, different 
kingdoms, like so distantly related. Humans are more closely related to mushrooms than we are to plants. Um, so the, the mushrooms basically are being grown on blocks of sawdust. Uh, pretty standard as far as like mushroom production. Um, <clears throat> it's all, I, I believe we're just using sawdust and soybean hull as the, as the nitrogen source. Um, and then some of, some of the spent substrate has been going to some landscaping companies to make like a compost. So that's a nice way to close that loop and make sure that, you know, we're not just throwing away valuable carbon um packaging it into pills and selling it as host defense but anyways yeah <laughs> uh, so so yeah. is is mushrooms most of what you end up growing or what do you end up growing on your farm because i know you have like the mm -hmm. what is it dragon's tongue uh beans dragon's tongue beans have been a fun one this yeah. year um i yeah i've we've been playing with sort of different variety while also paring down so ground cherries have been sort of one of our um, hallmark products. Uh, they're like a fruity relative of the tomatillo. They're delightful. Um, I've been planting a lot of trees and fruiting things. So generally the goal is like, I want, I want to be bringing to market and just getting to people food that is healthy, uh, delicious, and relatively easily accessible. So the ground chairs are great just because they're a snack. Like you can cook them down, you can muddle them into cocktails, they're really nice, but generally it's just like, eat them raw. Just don't, you know, don't eat chips or like don't eat some candy, eat this instead. This will make you feel better, I promise you. <laughs> um, we've done the tomatoes that I'm doing now, um, got speckled roma and midnight roma uh which are just two kind of specialty varieties of like paste type tomatoes and then sun sugar are i think the sweetest tomatoes that i have found so i'm kind of finding the varieties that mostly i like other everyone else seems to like them too which is why i continue growing them at larger scale but um those have been really great. Um, uh, Japanese hullless popcorn. It's just a really tender, like really nice popcorn. So I'll be harvesting that soon. Tender popcorn. Tender popcorn. <laughs> uh, yeah, they, they don't, the, the hull itself is um, thinner. So it doesn't get stuck in between your molars. That's amazing. Yeah. It's I'll great. <laughs> yeah. What do you What do you do to keep the soil healthy then? Um, because they're all perennials or um, annuals that you're talking about yes. now, right? So other than the trees that you've planted, it'll probably take a little bit. Yeah. Generally, my my approach for basically improving the soil for like our annual spaces is um, one of the rules that I've heard a lot of times is always keep a living root in the soil. Mm. Plants. They're like their primary job is to turn sunlight into sugar and a healthy plant will be pumping 50% plus of its sugars into soil hmm. that equals carbon in the soil. So having something always living is one of the main strategies, mulching a lot, 
Um, Wait, so what is that, how does that mean for like a tomato plant? Like, do you just plant it around other perennials? Um, so yeah, it's, it's always a balance. And this is kind of the permaculture thing too, is figuring out like what, what is good for the environment and good for the future, but will also accomplish your goals and give you a yield. None of this stuff is worthwhile if you don't get something out of it for yourself. That's just basic human greed. Uh, you got, you got to take care of yourself. So, um, while most of this stuff is growing, like I've tried, um, companion planting a lot and some of them work. Some of them are a pain in the ass with tomatoes. I've got basil marigolds sometimes, some flowers along the bottom, but yeah, a bed is basically tomatoes. Once those are done, I'll cover crop. So for the winter, I'll be planting mostly rye. That'll actually survive the winter and come spring, that'll start growing really strong. Basically, you've just got plants living, growing, protecting the soil, keeping uh, a functioning cycling ecosystem in the soil, which again, just means that you're not losing stuff. So like there's, there's flushes of nitrogen in the spring when everything thaws and things start decomposing. If you don't have microbes and plants absorbing those things, they join the water and then you get runoff. Um, so for the spring, I've found it really helpful to do that. And then basically I'll terminate with, uh, I'll mow it and cover it with a tarp for a couple of weeks. So that's interesting. So like a, a tomato bed is tomatoes in the summer mm-hmm. and then you plant rye in it. you let that go. And then in the spring, you let it go for a little bit longer than once it's, it's no longer a frost, you'll cover it up. And then when you take it off again, does that rye just start popping up again or do you replant it? Um, with tarping, like there's, there's very specific strategies and like you can find research articles on this stuff, but you can use, um, clear plastic and that's referred to as solarizing. So if you've got a couple of hot sunny days, put clear plastic, like used greenhouse plastic, that'll basically cook everything on top. It's a balance. You don't want to leave it on too long or get it too hot because it can bake your soil and basically sterilize it. But, uh, I've used that a couple of times this year, you know, cover it for like two or three hot sunny days. Done. It's beautiful. Everything like weed control that's tarping is what I'm primarily doing going forward because it doesn't take that much energy uh, or time and it's incredibly effective. So in the spring when it's not really sunny or warm, I'll probably be using like black silage tarping. Um, and you leave that on for maybe, I don't know, two weeks. So you're, you're depriving everything of light long enough where anything, uh, so like with, with a rye cover crop, I'll try to mow it and then cover it. So, you're it's sort of like the you know double one two punch knock it back and then smother it um 
you get a lot of microbial action, especially if you've got a good like water content. So everything just like breaks breaking down, down really yeah. quickly. And once you take it off, it's just clean. It's ready to go. And I don't, I, I haven't tilled the garden since we started it. So hmm. I'm not disturbing that stuff. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm not going to act like I'm been doing this for decades. I'm still fairly new at it, but trying these things out and listening to a lot of people that have been doing it for a long time, uh, the less you till, the less you like stir up your seed bed, the less weeds you have over time. That's fascinating. Yeah. So what about the weed control with the, is that solar tarping? Is that what you called it? Solarizing. Yeah. So um, how does that work? With the clear plastic, it's, it's just faster than black plastic. Uh, with, you know, with sun, black plastic will heat up really quickly. Sometimes you'll use white if it's going to be like too hot. Um, but yeah, it's, it's amazing, man. I, I had one area, uh, one bed in particular that I had peas going in early this spring and I hadn't staked them up. I was just like, they'll support themselves. And that was dumb. Uh, but the, the beds, I've got a bunch of wood chips and cardboard usually, but you know, that gets out of control too. So I finally was just ready to call it quits on that bed, went through, chopped it. I didn't do anything to the paths. And then I covered it with this clear plastic, weighted down the corners and some of the edges so that you don't get wind coming through. And yeah, it was, I think three days later I pulled it off and the the weeds in the paths they look like i mean they almost look like they've been sprayed with herbicide everything is just like dry and crispy and some of those things if i had left it on for another day i think i would have actually killed basically everything but some of those things did recover because the basically um all their resources had not been expended or cooked. So there was still some juice left in the roots and some bounced back, but it saved me a bunch of time. Yeah, that's fascinating. So you just essentially are just cooking it yeah. and drying it all out. And then this way you don't have to put any effort into pulling them yeah. or, uh, you know, chemicalizing them. Right. And then that just breaks all of those nutrients back down. Right. And then it probably even wouldn't cook any of the seeds too then, right? To make it... Yeah, I listened, I looked into one study of the solarizing and um, you get really high rates of uh, denaturing of weed seeds, at least at, you know, in the top like two centimeters, which is where most of your germinating seeds are coming from anyway. So you'll reach, like I said, on a, a good like 80 degree day with full sun and not a lot of wind it can get up to 120 on the soil surface there, which is, yeah, more than enough to like start potentially even like eliminating uh, fungal pathogens and stuff too. So it's, it's a tool. You can overdo it, you know, leaving a clear tarp on the ground for two weeks, you're going to have, at least where where we are, like cooked clay, like an entire section of pottery. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god. Yeah. No. Working in the soil around here is just it's. Uh, I mean, I grew up 
in Illinois, not too far from here, but it's not, mm. that's not what's here. Like no. Illinois, just, they, they raped all of the soil where here it's still such thick clay, like having to dig anything out of my yard takes oh, yeah. so much effort. Oh my God. And we live in a really interesting area as far as, um, you know, glacier history. Mm-hmm. I think Illinois, uh, Southern Illinois is still pretty interesting topographically, but for the most part, that was prairie. It's flat. Um, up here, my understanding is we're at sort of the tail end of where glaciers reached. So there's like, there's pockets of sand. Uh, we live in kind of like a moraine area. So there's these neat little like hills and places where glaciers probably settled and then melted before like actually scraping everything off. So the hill that we're on, solid clay, like the densest yeah. clay that I've ever experienced. Yeah. Uh, 20 minutes south, pure sand. Yeah. Well, a lot of that has to do with the fact that Lake Michigan was still uh, underwater, like pretty much to where we are now was still water until not that long ago. Okay. Yeah. So uh, that's always like that, you know, that big hill, <laughs> if you're going like on Campbell towards the lake. Mm-hmm. That actually is pretty much where it stopped. Okay. So it used to be water, and then the water actually receded to be where Lake Michigan is now. Gotcha. Uh, so, yeah, no, it's super interesting of both uh, yeah. the glaciers didn't really get farther south than here, and then yeah. when they did, it was mostly water, and then all of that got filled in from Oak Savannah, which then was managed. So you have this incredibly thick clay area, which is I don't know, fascinating. The the Grand Kankakee Marsh. Uh, I haven't checked are, it out yet. Are you familiar with like that history no, here? No, not at all. So this, uh, it was, we watched this like PBS documentary on the Grand Kankakee Marsh. It was this whole area um, from sort of like the southern edge of Michigan following the Kankakee River over to, I think it ended in like Moni, Illinois. Uh, but they, they called it like the Everglades of the North. Apparently this area is what generated the wealth of chicago like absurd levels of abundance from like duck and like waterfowl to you know um just like all sorts of fishing resources and so where where i live is sort of on this lip and from a topographical perspective you can see we're right on the edge of a watershed that drains north into Lake Michigan and south of us would have been into the Kankakee Marsh. Huge wetland area um, comparable to the Everglades. Hmm. But it was like late 1800s, early 1900s. Um, basically, it was like, well, there's a lot of mosquitoes out here and we've pretty much hunted all the ducks. Uh, so the idea was dredge the Kankakee River into one straight line, blow up all the dams, drain all the lakes, and just decimated this, like, one of the most vital ecosystems in the Midwest. Wow. Like, west of us, yeah, prairies, oak savannas. um, That's one thing that I'm always kind of, like, blown away by is uh, those little bits from, like, 
early explorer accounts like wow it's so abundant here it's crazy how many resources are here no i read about those <laughs> i i find it fascinating just how absolutely they, they were just blown away saying i mean uh Dan Flores has that book, American Serengeti, which I think is a great mm. uh, representation of it, of just, it, you know, think of the Serengeti of Africa, where there's just everywhere is abundant. And that's what was here. I mean, the Oak Savannah, which there's some remnants of it where we live, you yeah. know, and that used to be the largest ecosystem in the world is now the most endangered ecosystem in the world. Yeah. And something like 0.5% of it, what was once here. Yeah. It's crazy. It used to be from essentially the Appalachian Mountains until the tree line runs, you know, west. Mm -hmm. So think of it like Oklahoma area from, you know, all the way up in uh, Minnesota, all the way south to Texas. That whole yeah. area used to be oak savanna. And the most productive ecosystem is savanna. Mm -hmm. So pound for pound, the amount of plants, biomass, you know, of plants and animals it can produce is, is the largest. And it was just decimated. Yeah. A lot of it is, you know... I, I, I have such a pension for trees. I find it so funny that in books they say, oh, you know, this oak tree only lives to be like three, 400 years old. And you look at these accounts and it's, no, I mean, thousands plus, you know, you can get in a black oak that lives over a thousand years yeah. because you have these stories of settlers who chopped down these trees that were thicker than they are tall. And they were saying, oh, I just need some firewood one day. Yeah. Uh, and it's this insanely old oak. Um, I had no idea about the Kankakee Marsh though. I did know about this area getting uh, completely decimated from white uh, white pines, which you can actually, if you go to old mm. buildings in Chicago and you look at the beams yeah. that hold up the floors, chuck the stamps in them because it'll probably have come from the dunes. Um, uh, so okay. like the Indiana dunes used to be, you know, the whole area that is up against the lakeshore is now oak and beach. Yeah. It used to just be white pines, really? massive white pines. Uh, but they were able to fell it and then drag over water to Chicago all of the pines. And that's what built the first skyscrapers were the white pines from uh, the dunes. Crazy. Because they were just... And once again, like if you look at the accounts of what they were, the pictures and all that, you can't find a white pine that's that big anymore. Yeah. Uh, and the biggest, the tallest trees of certain species are in Indiana because of where it, it's the cold meets the... The, mm. the warm and you can actually make this you know environment like once again if you look at sugar maples they'll tell you sugar maples can't get as big as they are in the dunes yeah but it's like no no, no I, I don't know i i know where i know exactly where a sugar maple is that is enormous and you're telling me it can't get that big um so the, the white pines here were absolutely enormous and if it wasn't for that they wouldn't have been able to to build the, the skyscrapers in yeah. chicago especially after the fire um as fast but crazy i had no idea about the marsh though um, it's insane how much abundance used to be here. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, it's an important thing to like try to remember and just keep in perspective, like what we've traded, you know, not, not us personally, but humanity, like we decided to, all but annihilate the bison and there was how many hundreds of millions of bison running around that sustained people for millennia and now we've got cows it's like i don't know they're not that different we could have continued the tradition that was working but we decided that we didn't want to do that um 
and yeah, maybe it's a little bit more convenient to have all of our cows in a warehouse instead of a bunch of bison roaming around and you know, we'd have to like build some we'd have to build more bridges for them. We'd have to like clear some prairies for them to walk around and, you know, be alive. Uh, Doesn't sound like all that much different work than blowing up dams and draining a marsh. Oh, uh, my God. The amount of effort spent on environmental destruction sometimes is absolutely mind-boggling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, what Mark Shepard talks about this a lot, too, though, where, and this is the thing that comes up all the time of can restorative or regenerative agriculture, permaculture, can it be as productive as industrial agriculture? Mm-hmm. And everyone is kind of of the kind no it can't well i really want to challenge that though because i think think it absolutely can i think it absolutely can because you know what mark shepherd talks about is you plant a lot of plants you know he has this whole stun of sheer total utter neglect which i think is awesome yeah uh where you you plant a lot of plants you have tried that with like 150 trees by the way and like three of them survived yeah well i mean it's deer yeah (laughs) yeah deer around here is insane which we should be hunting more anyways i digress uh you know um you you plant a lot you have them be symbiotic with each other so that you know one plant is actually putting the nutrients that the other one needs you have them all layered on top of each other and the thing that you get with industrial agriculture is you it's solid inputs in solid inputs out and you can scale it i think the big thing is that you can easily and understandably scale it where with permaculture you have to copy it you have to keep copying these different parts of the ecosystem and you have to make adapting and adapting to whatever it is, the climate or the soil or whatever it may be, right? But the thing that Mark Shepard says is a bad year comes through. And there's actually a really great video of, uh, of somebody going to his farm where they show up to his farm and it was huge deluge of rain. Mm. And he's in southern Wisconsin. Farms all around him that were covering uh, soybeans or uh, corn all got washed out and completely flooded. And they're pretty much, they have to replant. Yeah. You get to Mark Shepard's farm. He's laughing. He's having a good time. He's not laughing because other people are in dismay. He's just <laughs> laughing because he's having a good time of it. Yeah. And his soil just sucked up all that water. And now yeah. that's in his you know springs that are going to be popping up. And you know what it ends up meaning is you know maybe there is too much water one year, and certain crops aren't going to grow that much, and not going to have that great of a yield. But you have so many other crops that make up yeah. for it. You end up balance. You're still about the same. Right, exactly. So diversify, exactly. Um, And, you know, in industrial agriculture, you get the scale, you get the abundance of that, but then now you're actually far more unstable to external shocks than you would be if you just diversified, if you built things on top of each other um, in such a a much more holistic manner than saying, oh, I'm just going to pump a bunch of nitrogen in or give these cows a bunch of feed or steroids and i'll know exactly you know when they're going to go to market how it's going to be right um not thinking about all the trade-offs that you're doing in order to actually make that possible yeah um it's it's a weird cruxy time it feels i don't know it's a weird like i've I've heard from adults many times uh, that, you know, people older, I'm an adult. I'm an adult. Um, <laughs> <Your> father. 
yeah, like people always have this existential anxiety, like, oh my gosh, we're we're in a precarious situation globally, and you know things are so bad. But uh, it does feel like a particularly cruxy time where things are going to change soon in ways that we can't necessarily predict. And I think that a lot of the good lessons from older cultures, mostly, you know, I think of indigenous American cultures, um, the, the bits and pieces that I've gleaned as far as like theory and philosophy, but also permaculture, um, agroforestry, like larger scale systems, the biggest problem is that we have such a sense of immediacy set like planting an agroforestry system is something that you know a nut tree won't necessarily produce if you're growing from seed you're looking at 15 years maybe capitalism in america doesn't have time for that which is a problem because that's not that long of a time um but I think the solution is layering those things. So we need to have a little bit more leniency. We need to have a little bit more patience and the trust in ourselves and these systems that we can plant. We can bring back chestnut trees, like as an example, that's a thing that we need to do. And there's organizations that are working on that, but that's important for food sovereignty. Because we, elderberries, hazelnuts, um, even walnuts, like we can grow all of these things and we've got native species that will grow here, but we haven't done it because it's too long of an investment time. The ROI isn't good, can't handle it. So what, we import everything from Europe? Okay, COVID happens. Oh no, we can't get all this stuff anymore. So yeah, it's it's thinking, I think taking some of those ideals from, uh, some of those ideals and traditions and just like inspirations from indigenous American cultures that clearly were doing some things right. Clearly they also had problems, but managing 200 million bison and growing fruit trees that like there's mentions of mangoes growing in this area we don't we have no idea like what those things are because they're gone now um there's all sorts of food crops that we probably had in this bioregion that don't exist anymore because we stopped stewarding them so like there's potential. We don't necessarily get the things that people in, you know, Thailand or Australia get. They've got different plants. They've got a different climate. That's fine. Going to visit those places can still happen and be a treat. But the thing that I think about is and it's such a thing with social media, like you see what everyone else is doing and it's like, I want that thing. That thing doesn't exist if someone didn't work to create it and steward it. Like we've gone to visit my, my mother-in-law in Florida and there's this place called the Fruit and Spice Park. 
it's awesome. It's just like a huge, I don't know, 150 acre park full of like fruiting trees and you can eat anything that's on the ground. Uh, it's dope. We could have that here. We could have a fruit and spice park. There's pawpaws, there's spice bush, there's all these different like aromatic herbs that grow around here naturally. We can plant peaches and apples and pears and like all these things that will grow in fruit year round. But no one's done it. People will travel to Florida to go to that place. But no one's like, we need to, I think, the danger of, of culture, which I think everything can, everyone can agree on right now is this uh, crushing sense of FOMO. And it's not, it's paralyzing. It's, it's not healthy and it's not, in, it's not inspirational. It only creates like a sense of envy and anxiety. And I think that's the thing that we need to shift um, collectively for the good of, you know, <laughs> for the good of everyone, but for certainly future generations. I feel so bad for kids growing up these days. Oh, God. It was hard enough when we were growing up, but like someone was... I think it was a comedian talking about his daughters like yeah it sucked growing up and getting bullied but like now it, there there are no spatial limits to who can bully you or who you can compare yourself to there was like the the cool guy or the hot girl in your class like, man I wish I looked like that person now you can scroll through Instagram and see a thousand people that are more attractive than you and just feel worse and worse about yourself. It's awful. Yeah, you can't escape it. You know, it's it's pretty terrible. Um, I think every generation has their own complexities and issues. And I mean, like, we're, I think we're going through a phase shift right now. Like, yeah. things are definitely changing. Um, the thing that I always try to remind myself is, I mean, the glaciers melted and people are around. You know, however, the glaciers melted. We know it was fast, so that was pretty insane. <laughs> uh, you know, yeah. so you know we've adapted before. We just have to do it again and, yeah. and and look at it through a sense of as a challenge we can arise to, as opposed to something we need to shrink from. Yeah, uh, and I do love what you just said about you know we can have in the Midwest a fruit and spice garden, uh, and yeah. we totally could. I mean, pawpaws are amazing, and I didn't know about them until I moved to Indiana, and I'm like, what the fuck is this? This is like a custard? Like, it yeah. tastes like a custard? This is amazing. Straight-up tropical fruit. Yeah, and it's growing here, and it grows everywhere, you know? Yeah. Um, but I just don't think there's the awareness yet, you know? I think... Uh, and, and the other thing, too, is how much the importance of native things are. You know, like mm. Douglas Talmy has that book, uh, Bringing Nature Home, and... You need native plants because that's native insects and, and caterpillars. And that's going to be, you know, the primary source of birds rearing their young isn't, you know, uh, acorns. It's right. it's bugs. Yeah. So if you want more songbirds, you're going to need uh, more bugs. And yeah. in, in order to just maintain and sustain this whole thing. Um, so I think there is a lot of hope and a lot of ways that we could be inspired about to going into the future. It's just that you have to keep things more in a thriving manner as opposed to what we have now, which is what am I going to put in? What am I going to get out? Yeah. And keeping an open mind to that, that whole concept of like what you're told exists isn't all that exists. 
and what you're told is possible isn't all that's possible. Um, could could we have local avocados? I don't see why not. They're not going to be the same as the ones that grow in California, but like you put in you put in a couple generations of work and like things can respond fast. That's one of the coolest things about mushrooms is how fast you can work with them. Plants are slower. It's something that you just got to deal with and be patient with. But any anything that's alive can adapt and learn. And we should be the shining example of that because we're so tuned to, like you said, be plastic and like change and adapt to things. We're so good at learning and we have so much potential that uh, listening to the narrative of the government, the the social culture, social media, everyone's telling us that like this is just the way that it is. This person's got more than you. This is better. This is worse. Like fuck all that. Uh, yeah, and I mean, once again, Mark Shepard he says in there of you know you can in a few generations potentially have coffee that grows in southern Wisconsin and you can have yeah. coffee plants that are here or you're talking about chestnuts you know the 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 government's answer to chestnut blight was let's cut down all the chestnuts which I don't think most people realize the mm-hmm. chestnut trees were called the eastern sequoias they were enormous 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 trees and sometimes you'll see at parks still the like the fossilized petrified uh trunks of these things and mm-hmm. it's it's enormous and how big they were, you know, they used to be everywhere. It was the most dominant tree east of the Mississippi. Yeah. We just decided to cut them down as opposed to saying, well, let's see which ones survive because the ones survive probably are immune to chestnut blight. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I think this is a great inspirational place that we can, we can cut it off. I mean, this yeah. was awesome to chat. Uh, this was really informative, especially the microbiome and the, zi- the zombie uh, microbes that their yeah. plants are eating. That's wild. <laughs> um, is there anything you want to say before we, we cut it off? Um... I don't, I don't know. I have, I have so many, I have so many opinions, um, and none of them are right. (laughs) Um, yeah, I don't know. Just like being, being more appreciative of, of what we've got and not being so averse to discomfort and work and, um, yeah, if, if we want to, if we want to like create a better future and ultimately the world that we want to like see and live in and for our kids to live in, then we need to work on it. And, um, man, I could, I could talk for hours about like my theories on parenting and stuff, but like that's parenting and for non-parents, like being there for kids is the most important thing that you can do because you're gonna die and no one's gonna care. Uh, <laughs> you'll you'll be forgotten, um, and your your the kids are the next ones. Mm-hmm. And if we don't instill the values that we want to see in the world then they'll just adopt whatever the fuck is floating around. And right now it's all garbage. Most so of it, yeah. I feel I feel very strongly about um 
Yeah, just like treating people uh, better, treating plants and your environment and the soil better, the air, the water, like all of this stuff is important. And in my opinion, we put too much emphasis on the well-being of human beings and not enough on uh, children and non-human beings. Yeah, I, they're I more think, important than us. Yeah, I even think human beings don't get uh, enough of their mentality even considered in sense of being. But yeah, for sure. This was fun though. We yeah. should do this again. <laughs> <laughs> Great yeah. way to end it. Thanks. Thanks for having me. For sure. I'm gonna end it here. <laughs> yeah.